All right, so we are studying this quarter um, the life and the epistles of the Apostle Peter. And uh, we'll start off with uh, some review once again. Um, this time I've left some blanks in the chart. Uh, so let's see uh, if things are maybe sticking a little bit better now. So we talked about a couple times the, the theme or the purpose of the two epistles of Peter. So the theme or purpose of 1 Peter, as we said, is to provide warnings and encouragement to the Christians about dangers from where? All right, dangers from outside of the church, that's correct. So these dangers come in the form of trials and tests. And there was one word that we said is used numerous times in 1 Peter. And what word was that? Well, hope is used, yes, but what word uh, is one of the key words um, that goes along with the lines of trials and testings? What word does he like to use to warn them about what is coming down the line? I think I heard it. Yeah, suffering, yeah. So suffering is used numerous times in the book of 1 Peter, along with words like trial and testing. So he's going to provide warnings to the early Christians about the the sufferings that they were currently ex, um, exposed to and that would be coming even worse in the near future. Um, but then as Linda said, he's going to also offer hope, which is going to be a, a main theme of this book, um, hope that you can get through these times of suffering and persecution. Um, in contrast, slightly, Second Peter is going to be warning the Christians about dangers from a slightly different location. And what is that? All right, dangers from within the church, right. And so one of the key words that's used numerous times in 2 Peter, which contrasts with uh, false teachers, blasphemy, and scoffers, is going to be the word. So how do you combat false teachings? With Scripture, that's right. He uses the word knowledge. So he's going to stress in 2 Peter, which we won't get to for a little while, um, knowledge our accurate knowledge, which is going to combat the false teachings that would take place um, that he will provide warnings against. All right, so those are our uh, overall themes for these two epistles. So uh, this is our timeline for Peter's life. So we've said we think that he was born around the same time as Jesus, which would be at around 1 B.C., 180 area, and then he would have been about the same age as Jesus, so around 30 or so A.D., he would have been called to become an apostle. Uh, he spent three years working alongside Christ during his ministry on earth. Um, he was there at the trial of Christ and the crucifixion. And then what did Peter do? An important event that occurred 50 days after the Passover, 10 days after Christ had ascended. That's right. He preached that first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost Looked at that briefly last week. Um, he spent um, the rest of his uh, adult life uh, as a minister of Christ. He was a gospel preacher and a missionary. He's also an, a pillar in the early church. And then around what time is our best guess as to when he wrote these two epistles. And then also very soon after that, he was killed. Do what? Did I hear anything in the back? It's after 50 A.D., 
Yeah, so best guess here is around 65 AD. It's about when most scholars believe that these epistles were written and then they believe that he died as a martyr pretty soon after these two epistles were written. Okay, so names of Peter. Peter goes by numerous names in scripture. So which name was probably his given name by his parents? All right, Simon or Simeon was most likely the name that he was given. That was his birth name. But then Jesus sort of gave him a new name, which was Peter, um, which we know of as his name most commonly because it's the most commonly used name for this man throughout the New Testament. And what does the word Peter mean? All right, it means rock or stone. It comes from the Greek word petros or petra. And um, in Matthew chapter 16, and we'll look at this in more detail in a future class, um, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And he uses this play on words of the name of Peter and the rock of Peter's uh, uh, confession um, to rename Peter the rock. And then there's one other name that he goes by a few times, and it's the Aramaic word for rock. And what was that word or that name for Peter? Cephas, that's right. So he's also called Cephas sometimes, um, not as commonly, but that's the Aramaic word for rock, or it comes from the Aramaic word for rock. Um, and that was also a name that he went by. Okay, so we've also talked about how there are several examples or evidences in scriptures that kind of point to the fact that Peter was a leader amongst the apostles. So tell me some of the things that the scriptures we can read about that are evidences for maybe the importance of Peter within the early church or one of the facts that led to him being a leader amongst the apostles and early church. All right, that's right. So in all the lists we have of the 12 apostles, Peter's always written first in that list. His name comes up first. He was chosen to preach... The first gospel sermon to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. He was also the first to preach the gospel to who else? The Gentiles, that's right. So Cornelius and his family were, in our records at least, the first Gentiles to be preached the gospel. And Peter was the one who preached those gospel sermons and taught those people in both cases. What other evidences do we have of Jesus selecting Peter or identifying Peter as being a leader? So think about what happened when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and when he went up on the mountain to be transfigured. All right, so he pulled out his inner circle, we call it sometimes, Peter, James, and John to come along with him. So Peter was part of that inner circle of Christ. And then additionally, after Christ was ascended and the apostles and early disciples were just kind of there in Jerusalem, hanging out, wondering what's going to come next, who was it that stepped up and said, okay, we've got to appoint a new apostle to replace Judas? It was Peter. So Peter was the one that stepped up and sort of took charge in that setting to um, initiate the events that would lead to Matthias being appointed as a replacement for Judas. Uh, so these are all evidences we have about Peter and his importance, his centrality for the apostles and the early church.
All right, two more review slides. So first of all, we talked about, and Linda mentioned this already, that what is one word we can say is a theme for Peter and his writings overall? Hope. Peter wrote about hope. He would write about hope as a combatant for the struggles they would face within the church and struggles they would face from outside of the church. Hope would get them through it. All right, and then we also said that John and Paul both also had one-word themes for their writings. What was the overall theme for the writings of the Apostle John? Love. And then we said uh, this is taken in part from 1 Corinthians 13. Now abide these three, and each one of those three was said to be an overall theme for these three writers. So we already got love and hope. So what was the third thing that endures based upon Paul that also he wrote lots about, especially in Romans and Galatians? Faith. All right, yep. All right, so John wrote about love. Paul wrote about faith, and Peter wrote about hope. All right, and then for our outline for last week's class, um, Peter introduces this first epistle um, by saying that three things about hope. Hope is Blank in the future, blank in the past, and blank in the present. What is hope, relationship to the future? All right, it's going to be fulfilled in the future through our inheritance. Peter wrote in that first part of chapter 1 about the inheritance that we will receive. Our hope is fulfilled in the future. And our hope is what relative to the past? All right, it is rooted or grounded in the past. All right, and what was that important event that allows our hope to be rooted in the past? Why do we have hope? All right, yeah, Christ. Christ, crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, that's the reason that we have hope. And then hope is rooted in the past, it is fulfilled in the future, but what is it doing right now? All right, Peter said hope is living, hope is alive in the present, and that's what he's writing about now is what is hope doing right now in the present? It's not stagnant, it's not just hanging out there, it's alive, it's literally doing things. All right, so that brings us to chapter 1 and verse 13, where we'll spend our time this morning. And the title for this lesson is Called to be Holy and to Love. So in the next section, the rest of chapter 1, and the very first part of chapter 2, we're going to look at what is, the, uh, what is the result of the hope that we have. What are our obligations? What are our expectations based upon the hope that we have that Peter described in the first part of chapter 1? All right, so if you look at the very first word, verse 13, he says, therefore. All right, therefore is there for a reason. So what he's about to say, our study this morning, is all based upon what he just said. All right, and to summarize what he just said, he said that because Christ was raised from the dead, we have hope of salvation. Because we are heirs with Christ, we have hope of heaven. And because God keeps his promises, we can have confidence and a confident hope. 
So therefore is based upon all those factors that he wrote about previously regarding hope. And before we jump into the text, he's going to be using a lot of um, motivators for us. Right? What is going to motivate Christians to live lives of holiness and motivate Christians to love? Now, when you think about motivations, we oftentimes say that um, we can be intrinsically motivated or we can be extrinsically motivated, right? You know, you think about um, if you have kids or maybe you yourself, when you were in school studying for tests, some kids are inherently intrinsically motivated. For whatever reason, they're just built that way. They want to do well. They want to study. They want to succeed. Or, you know, if you've got kids or maybe you played sports, some kids are intrinsically motivated to get out there and practice. They'll go in the backyard and they'll shoot the basketball. They'll go in the backyard and they will throw the ball, right? They just have that intrinsic motivation to do it. But then other kids, maybe you, require that extrinsic motivation, something else to really drive you. And extrinsic motivations, we sometimes say, can be a carrot or a stick, all right? We can give positive reinforcement and positive motivation, right, through the carrot, a reward, all right? If you do this, you will get X, Y, or Z. So if you do well in your test, you know, I will get you some ice cream. If you do well in your test, you get an A in the class, and there's a prize on the other side. That's that positive motivation, whereas we also sometimes need the negative motivation as well. If you don't do well on your test, you get grounded. If you don't do well on your test, then uh, you get an F, right? So there's a combination of those positive motivating factors and those negative motivating factors that are coming from the outside. And we're going to see examples of all three of those in this text. All right, when Peter writes to, the, to these early Christians to be holy, to live lives of purity, and to love one another, he's going to talk about hope as being that intrinsic motivator. He's also going to describe as well some extrinsic factors that can help us stay on the right course. Okay? So let's, uh, let's read the first section here, verses 13 and following. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. All right, so quite simply, he is calling these Christians to be holy. He is telling them that that's one of their purposes, that's one of their uh, um, expectations, obligations, while here on earth is being holy. Um, now, the word holy, as you probably know already, means um, sanctified or set apart. It means different, different from all the rest. So he is calling the Christians, he's calling us to be different. Uh, the Greek word that we get holy from is hagios, 
which is also translated as well into saint. So the same Greek word can be translated as holy when it's describing someone like an adjective or a saint. When it's describing more of a person, a saint is someone who is holy, someone who is different or set apart. Now, when we think about holy, oftentimes our mind goes straight to God. Right? We know that God is holy. But as Peter is going to tell these individuals and us, we too are called to be holy. So holy doesn't just mean powerful or spiritual or something that we can't obtain. We, in fact, can be holy even while we're here on earth. And we're called to be so because we're called to be different. We're called to be set apart from all the rest. We're called to be pure. And a lot of this context about holiness upon earth is really about purity. It's about being different from the world or flesh, which is impure, and we're called to be something different. We're called to be pure. All right? So how do we accomplish that? Well, first of all, he says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So this is not something you can do passively, all right? You have to focus, right? Preparing your minds. That's very intentional, focus. Be sober-minded, all right? That means be focused, you're concentrating, you have a clear head, all right? This requires some effort on our part, mentally speaking. We have to focus what we're going to be doing. It's not something that's going to just happen all by itself, not something we can accomplish in a passive manner. So first of all, he tells them this is going to require some action on your part. So go ahead and prepare your minds for reaction and be sober-minded. And he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? Now, these next few verses here are going to give us these three motivators. All right? Three motivators to help us be holy. So verse 14, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who is holy as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All right. So, first of all, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Right? So we're not going to be like what we were back before. We're going to be different. The former ignorance, the passions, the flesh, that was the past. We are called to be different than the past. So at the time of baptism, we are cleansed. We are made pure. We become different. We become holy. So now it's all about moving towards the future and not reverting back to the past where there was impurity, where there was flesh. Okay, so the first uh, motivator here is going to be hope itself. Hope is the intrinsic motivation that we have to be holy. John wrote in 1 John 3, starting in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him 
purified himself, and he is pure. So that last section of what John wrote here, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hope is going to help us be pure. Hope is going to help us to become sanctified, to become holy. The second thing that's going to help us get there is these promises that God has provided. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises... Peter wrote about these promises in verses 10 through 12 here in this first chapter. We looked at this last week. We talked about last week toward the end of class how with hindsight, with retrospect, we can see the promises made through God and the prophets come into fruition. All right, They were fulfilled in Christ. And we can see, and Peter makes this argument, if God's promises were fulfilled in the past, then you have guarantee, you have assurance that the promises made now will also be fulfilled. We have reason to trust that our inheritance in heaven is going to be fulfilled because we can see that God holds true to his word. We can see through those prophets and their prophecies coming true and we can have assurance and confidence that other promises God makes to us, like the promise of heaven, will also come true. So, this is a positive motivator. This is that reward. This is the prize you get. This is the ice cream you get to go have after you make an A on the test. This is the A that comes out on your report card. This is that positive motivating factor. Our inheritance. All right, the promise that God has made to us for heaven, that is our inheritance. In verse 18, he's going to say, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we've been ransomed from these futile ways, and because of that, we had this inheritance. We have this promise of heaven in the future. And then the third factor that he's going to talk about here is reverent fear. And I have this listed as a negative extrinsic motivator because we think about fear as being something that is a negative motivator. I'm afraid of getting in trouble. I'm afraid of punishment. Now, there's a flip side of this in that it also can be positive as well. And we'll kind of look at both of those a little bit. Now, the word fear, as used in scriptures and referring to God specifically, does not carry this connotation about uh, terror. Um, you know, Riley, my youngest, wants to go watch scary movies because she thinks she's going to like, you know, being fearful. Reality, she's not going to like it at all, and I don't let her go watch scary movies because I know better than she does. But she thinks she's going to like it. This is not the kind of fear that we're talking about here. This is not the terror that comes from, you know, not knowing what's going to happen or having something being afraid for your own life. This is not that kind of fear. This is a reverent fear. 
Proverbs 16, verse 6 tells us that fear is a good thing. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Fear of God helps us turn away from evil and turn towards purity. Psalm 111, verse 10, the writer says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear has many benefits for the Christian if it's that reverent, respectful fear of God. And then Matthew 10 and verse 28, this is Jesus speaking. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now we see more of that negative motivation. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. God has the power to destroy our soul in hell. And Jesus is saying there, don't fear what's going to happen to you on earth, right? Don't fear something that can only affect your body. What you should be afraid of, what you should be respectful and reverent of, is that person, God, who can destroy your body and your soul. So verse 17, Peter's going to say, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's where he uses this word fear. So, call on him as father, who judges impartially. That's where the fear comes in. That is going to be what we should be aware of and respectful of, is that God's going to judge us, Everyone impartially based on your deeds. So are your deeds good? Are your deeds evil? Are your deeds pure or are they impure? Because that's going to ultimately determine the judgment that God will issue. And then verses 18 through 21, I'll I'll read all that together here. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, uh, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope in God, faith and hope are in God. We not only fear God because of his role as judge, but we also fear or revere God because of what he's given up for us. Not only is God our judge and jury, and we should respect him for that, but what did he give up for us? He gave up Christ. He gave up his son. He paid. He gave up something for us. We are in many ways indebted to him for that. And that also is motivation for us to have that fear, that respect and reverence. What he's done for us gives us pause to think and to revere him for that. 
Um, the Hebrew writer wrote in Hebrews 10, 26-29, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So three motivators. Hope. That's our intrinsic motivation. Number two, the promises that God has given to us. That's that positive external motivation. And then lastly, the reverent fear of God, knowing that he is judge, knowing what he's given up and sacrificed for us. That is going to be that negative, but also positive as well, um, extrinsic motivation. So, Verses 13 through 21, Peter writes about this call to be holy, this call to be set apart, and he explains why and what are those factors that are going to help us to accomplish that. So then let's move on now to verse 22. And he's going to change gears a little bit in verse 22 and call us for a second thing that we are to be on earth, a second thing that he expects of us. And that's going to be to love one another. So let's read the, the end of this chapter here, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like, is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. All right, we are born again through baptism, through the word of God, and we are purified through that. Love is a natural outflowing of what's been done to us. Love should flow naturally from being holy, from being pure. And that's what Peter is writing about here. Now, Peter, as we know, had a very um, important encounter with Jesus after his um, resurrection that was all about love. And it's written about in John 21. We're going to spend a few minutes going back to look at this event in Peter's life and think about what that means and how that influenced, perhaps, his writing of this section of Scripture right here. So, uh, flip over, if you will, to John 21. You can bookmark 1 Peter. We'll come back to it. But in John 21, this is after Jesus has um, been, resurrection, uh, been resurrected, and he is um, making different appearances to individuals during his, um, during his time on earth before his ascension. Um, in chapter 21, um, Peter and a few apostles were out on a boat, and they were fishing. And they weren't having any success. And then a man on the shore calls out to them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. And so they do it, and their nets fill with fish. All right, we sing a song about it, right? 
cast your nets on the other side. Along came Jesus walking on the seashore. All right, you may have heard that song from VBS. So when they catch all these fish, they, then John actually is the one who realizes and exclaims, this is Jesus. Because they didn't realize at first who it was on the shore telling them what to do. So as soon as John says, this is Jesus, Peter gets out of the boat and he like jumps in the water and swims to shore. All right, just like Peter, you know, impulsive, just jumps without even thinking what to do. So he gets to the shore. The other apostles bring in the boat. Um, Jesus has a fire prepared. They sit around the fire. They eat a meal together. And then Jesus is going to ask Peter three questions, or really one question repeated three times. So uh, let's see. Let's look at verse uh, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, this is Peter, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So we oftentimes look at this as kind of like a parallel passage to Peter denying Christ. During the trial of Christ before his crucifixion, um, Peter was asked on three occasions, you know this man, you're with him, you're one of his disciples. And all three times Peter denied Christ and said, no, I don't know him, I'm not one of his guys. So now we are several days later, and this is not a, a large jump in time here, right? So that would have been like a day or two before Christ was crucified and rose from the dead. And then Jesus was on earth about 40 days before his ascension. So we're looking at less than 40 days difference between these two events in, in overall time. So Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Um, Peter is grieved by this because it's reminding him about those three times that he denied Jesus, and he's remembering that event. It's almost like Jesus is reminding him by asking him three times about the three times that he denied Jesus. Now, there's a lot of um, speculation about different Greek words that are, that are used here, whether it is, you know, agape love or phileo love, and we won't get into the, the details of, of all that, but Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter replies three times, yes, I love you. And so think about that as we now flip back over to 1 Peter when he says in verse 22, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. What do you think was in Peter's mind when he wrote these words to the early Christians about loving one another?
which is what? All right, love. John was the apostle that Jesus loved. John was the one we said writes about love. Um, but right here, Peter is writing about love. And I can, I can imagine in my head when Peter is writing these words in 65 AD, he's probably thinking back to those three questions that Jesus asked him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Just think about the impact that would have on Peter as he pins these words to the early Christians about loving one another, about the importance, the essentiality of loving one another, of having that brotherly love for one another. What are ways that love plays out in our interactions today? If you love your brothers and sisters that are in this room right now, how does that play out? It's much more than just a, a mental emotion. It's action. So what are those actions? All right, encouraging one another. What else? I'm a teacher. I can stand here all day and wait. Bill. Absolutely. We provide for their needs. If the need is prayer, we provide that. If the need is service, we provide that. Whatever the need is, we provide those needs. That's what love is about. That's what brotherly love within the church is all about, is providing for the needs of others, encouraging one another. Because the inheritance that we have, we read last week, that's a shared inheritance with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. You're also fellow heirs with every other person in this room. And that inheritance that you're working so hard to obtain, we can help each other get to that same destination. Because just like Christ... We are all fellow heirs with each other just as much. Um, we are just about out of time here. So let me uh, move on quickly to this, uh, this last section here, of chapter, first part, chapter 2. Uh, Peter's going to write, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the spir uh, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. So, this is like a contrast to love. Love is all the things we just said. Love is encouragement. Love is service. Love is prayers. Love is helping and meeting the needs of one another. What is love not? What is the opposite that we need to be putting away from our interactions with each other? Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. That's the things that will get in the way of our love for each other. Malice, hatred of one another, deceit, lying to each other, 
not being honest with one another, hypocrisy, being two-faced to our fellow Christians, envy, being jealous of each other, and slander, gossip, talking about our fellow Christians behind their back. These are all the things that are going to interfere with the love that Peter is calling for us, the love that Jesus asked Peter if he really had. Because when Peter denied Christ, he was engaging in these very things that he's writing about now. He was being a hypocrite. When Jesus was in front of him, I love you, I'm your apostle. Jesus is now on trial, somebody else comes in. Are you one of his guys? No, I'm not one of his guys. I don't even know that guy. That's being a hypocrite. Peter says right here, that's the thing that will get in the way of your love for each other. So as we kind of wrap up right here, this, uh, this section of 1 Peter, hope. Hope is what we are given based on the promises that we have, based upon Christ, sacrifice, the hope that's fulfilled in heaven. And because of that hope, we are called, Peter says, for two main things. We're called to be holy. We're called to be pure while we're on earth. And we're called to love one another. Peter stresses in this passage, those are the two things that should come from the living hope. The two things that will characterize a Christian who is living in hope on earth is being sanctified, different, pure, holy, and a Christian who is going to love one another. So we'll finish up there for today and start again next week. Thanks.